Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest on this edition is Vernon Morris. He's an American atmospheric scientist, professor of chemistry, and director of the School of Mathematical and Natural Sciences at Arizona State University. There has been an increase in black atmospheric science PhDs. Morris has trained many of them. Um, But yeah, I I was in Washington, D.C. for a while, lived in, uh, uh, but I was there about 20 five years um, uh, working at NASA, uh, Goddard for, for three years, and then the rest of the time was at Howard University um, in chemistry and atmospheric sciences. Um, and then uh, started some research centers there. Um, I don't know how much you know about me. So I was Air Force brat. Uh, and so I spent most of my formative years, kindergarten, first grade out of the country in Philippines and Japan and then came back uh, and moved around quite a bit, ended up in Washington State, and uh, then from Washington State went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Georgia Tech for my PhD, um, out to Lawrence Livermore uh, for a postdoc, and then UC Davis and UC Berkeley for some additional postdocs, and then back to Howard, back to DC, crossed back over uh, the country to Washington, DC to start uh, as a faculty member at Howard University. Um, I actually left in 1997. Uh, I was a little disillusioned with uh, the, the profession. Uh, I went to Goddard, so I just moved. I didn't move very far. I didn't move physically from my house, but just moved jobs over to NASA Goddard in Greenbelt, Maryland. I was there for just under four years and then came back to the university um, and stayed for quite a while. Uh, And then recently moved, uh, actually packed up an RV and drove across the United States, moved from Howard University to Arizona State University. And that's that's where I am now. And so I've been here for about 15 months and uh, direct the School for Mathematical and Natural Sciences here and started a couple of new initiatives um, to one address equity, but we're also spinning up an environmental justice initiative here, um, given a number of climate and environmental equity issues uh, unique to the Southwest, but also centered in, uh, I think, the global climate catastrophe that we're all experiencing. Actually, yeah, what do, what do you guys do? What do, what do atmospheric scientists do? I mean- <laughs> okay, so my research, um, my research is right now, uh, probably the, the big featured research is the Saharan dust research, which is, um, it has implications from uh, atmospheric biodiversity and understanding the um, the communities that live in the atmosphere, so aerobiology, and how that's influenced by Saharan dust storms, uh, but also weather implications and air quality implications of Saharan dust storms and climate implications. And so my specific expertise is I can measure particles really well. So if anything exists on a minute particle, I can measure it. Now, how I apply that expertise is you know, in different places in air quality and looking at um, mineral dust once it gets suspended in the atmosphere and as it moves around in the atmosphere, it chemically evolves, it physically evolves and those chemical and physical changes change the microbial communities that reside on those particles as well as reside in the free atmosphere. And so- We could really use your expertise here now in the Canary Islands with that volcano spewing out all of that ash and, and you know, completely changing both 
the topography of the island and the air quality. Everybody's worried about it. And, uh, and uh, a lot of debate about how toxic it's going to be. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I actually was just talking to a friend in the Canary Islands. So some of my first work on Saharan dust was to go to Canary Islands, go to Payday and sort of go up and down that uh, mountain, that volcano. And because it's, you start from sea level and you go to quite high in the troposphere, you can profile the entire uh, Saharan dust plume, right? So you can, you know, there's a big plume of dust that extends from the Sahara. It goes over the Canary Islands. We can basically um, look at how it changes or what its you know, vertical profile is by going up today. So I'd actually stayed in Canary Islands uh, to study dust for some time. But I just talked to a friend who's uh, Gran Canaria, not in La Palma. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of, it's devastating what's happening on that particular island. Um, and once you get the volcanic ash hitting the ocean, you actually get some really toxic uh, acidic mix coming out of that. And so that's, that's gas mask wearing uh, conditions there. We call we call that dust Kalima, and a lot of it yep. is settles on our house. Uh, it comes right across the Mediterranean and uh, turns these white buildings light brown. Brown, yeah, orange, yep. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, we um, so I, I'm very interested in that um, because it has so many different effects. A lot of people look at it and say oh, it's it's on my car. I got to wash my car, or it's on my air filters but it redistributes uh, limiting nutrients to the ocean. Uh, it is, it seeds the Amazon forest. Um, it redistributes um, pathogens globally, uh, changes cloud properties globally. Uh, it changes chemistry and energy content in the tropical Atlantic, which is uh, you know, our hotbed for hurricanes and, and uh, transport, energy transport. So it's a lot of, you know, it looks like a, when I first got to studying it, it was basically noise to a friend of mine who's a physical oceanographer at NASA. And he was trying to do ocean color experiments. Um, and he came to me and said, you know, if I could just get this dust out of the, my signal, I could really do the science I want to do. So his noise, was the thing that I was really interested in. I was like, okay, I can, I think I can, I can do, I can do that. Uh, and so we designed some experiments. Actually, initially, just going around Puerto Rico. He was a Puerto Rican oceanographer and was interested in algal blooms and coastal mapping around Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. But during the dust season, he couldn't get any data because there was no mathematical way of removing the dust signal from the remote sensing data, the space-based data. So we designed some experiments to characterize the physical properties of the dust at that time. Um, and so once we knew what the physical properties were, we could develop a mathematical model to, um, to simulate how the dust uh, attenuated solar radiation, put that into the satellite retrievals, and then he could retrieve whether there was dust or not. But as we did that, we found out that the dust was actually changing. It wasn't just a particular chemical composition that we could then understand the spectral impact, but the spectral impact was changing because the chemical composition was changing, even over the um, spatial scales of Puerto Rico. So then we said, well, if it's changing in Puerto Rico, it must be changing all the way over. So why don't we go back upstream and look at the entire suite of changes. So that was in 2001, something like that, 2000, 2001. And so as we started to conduct those experiments, we kept on finding that the system was, was extremely dynamic. Um, and so a lot of the assumptions that were being made in the climate models and the air quality models and the weather models were just wrong because they said, the particles go into the atmosphere, they lift, then they fall back down. No physical changes, no chemical changes, and certainly there is no biology. And you know, little by little, we said, well, there's significant physical changes. 
there's significant chemical changes, there's actually vibrant microbial communities, and all of these have impacts on everything from the vibrancy of the upper ocean to people's health in the Caribbean, to food security, to climate. And so we've been unraveling that uh, little by little um, over the last you know, almost 20 years now. So I think uh, Jeffrey's probably familiar with this. Um, well, he's actually close enough, you can get dust a lot of the time, but the dust tends to flow in different directions um, at different times of the year. And so um, in the springtime, it's, it has a little, it's going um, westerly across the Atlantic Ocean uh, in many parts of the, um, uh, the Western Sahara. Um, and then as you get into the summer, the trajectory tends to, to drop um, down. Um, and so um, what you get is, and then if, it's, if you're talking wintertime or, or fall, it might be moving back, recirculating in the Gulf of Guinea or recirculating back up into the Mediterranean. And if you go to a different part of the, to the Eastern Sahara, you've got sort of monsoonal forcing over there. So sometimes it's moving back towards Saudi Arabia, sometimes it's moving inwards um, and down into subtropical Africa. And so depending on the time of year, the flows, whether they're moving towards the continent or away from the continent, are gonna push Saharan dust into different regions. Um, so regionally in Europe or globally across the tropical Atlantic and um, across uh, North America, South America. <laughs> so that's a, that's, a, that's a complex answer. That's a simple question with a complex answer. Um, there's a lot of dust going into the atmosphere as the desert expands. Um, and so you're, you're getting combinations of aerosols in places because the dust storms are getting more intense. Um, global circulation is changing. You're exposing uh, different regions to more dust and to different types of aerosols and people um, to particulate or air quality that they're not conditioned to. And so one of the threats is in some food security. You're basically pushing Saharan dust into places that it typically doesn't go. And so the pathogens that are loaded onto that dust are now invasive species in areas where before the plant species weren't, you know, weren't exposed to that or the coral species or the more sensitive parts of the ecosystem weren't exposed to that. So you are gonna get some, uh, some stress in biodiversity um, because of that um, health and respiratory types of uh, exposure is going to go up. And so that presents as, as health risk. Um, so uh, I, I think there are some things to be concerned about. Um, we live in highly, you know, we live highly conditioned lives though. You know? And so if you're inside, a lot of those threats are not, you know, not major, but if you spend time outside, uh, you have, you know, open air cooling, uh, not air conditioned, you know, units and stuff like that. Um, then there's going to be more risk. So the risk is differential. There's some concerns, but they're they're highly differential. What is under underlying these changes? I mean, you're you're talking about a change in the whole dynamic of of the atmosphere, um, and I, I presume global warming warming must have something to do with it. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's it's part of it is land surface use. Uh, there there. Are, droughts that are leading to a lot more soil, surface soil that can be mobilized and put into the atmosphere. Um, our global patterns of circulation are changing and systems are more powerful. Um, jets are more powerful, atmospheric jets are more powerful, um, especially systems that are moving across the Atlantic Ocean. And so uh, those are leading to one, the mobilization of more dust, you're getting more dust available to be pushed into the atmosphere. You're getting a larger region, uh, desert region, 
so that you again have more spatial coverage of dust and then your wind patterns are such that it's moving the dust further and more dust at a single time. So even the dust seasons are beginning to merge together. It used to be that you'd have a really clear pulse in the spring and then a, a larger pulse in the summer. And now you just sort of have almost continuous dust that's moving around with a slightly larger pulse over the spring and summer. And that's happened in the last 20 years. That's just what we've observed, a completely different change than the climatology that we analyzed to design our experiments. Right. Wow. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about the expansion of the desert? What's going on there and what's happening? So, you know, deserts naturally occur, uh, especially in uh, subtropics, um, just because of the global circulation. You tend to have uh, sort of high pressures um, that build uh, in a certain region. But um, the irrigation, the sort of farming systems um, at the Sahel, at the boundary between tropical Africa and Saharan Africa, have not, have not been sort of strategic in looking at what may happen um, you know, if, if you use the same crops, if you don't rotate crops, for example. Um, and so I think it's a combination of climate change, a combination of subsistence farming in the region and a lack of adaptive strategies that basically lead to an encroaching of the desert southward. Uh, and then you have a lot of water stress. So Lake Chad, if you look at the size of Lake Chad over the last 50 years, I think it's decreased at least 30%. And so you've got huge water stress in a hydrological system that basically provided the buffer against the desert, it's decreasing. And you're building population that's taking more and more water from that. Um, use of the Nile. So a lot of the, the Niger, Lake Chad, and the Nile are all stressed water systems. Those are the buffers that sort of kept the Saharan desert intact. As those get stressed, the desert can encroach because those boundary species that were sort of keeping the, the soil from getting mobilized and dried out, they're dying off. And then at the same time, as you have all of these sort of natural uh, physical processes happening, you've got really extreme migration because of civil war, uh, because of displacement of certain groups. And so when you displace 20,000 people or 50,000 people or you know, 100,000 people are moving because they're under attack, when they move through a region, they devastate the region. I mean, when they move through, it's gonna be desert later on because they've, they've, they've burned all the trees, they've taken all the bushes, used that for, for you know, fuel, um, to survive, to cook, et cetera. And so in that aftermath, basically the desert can fill right in. It doesn't grow back. It desertifies, especially if it's in that Sahel region. And that Sahel region is, is, has been in political conflict uh, since the 60s. Once a place is a desert, it's never known to come back or what? No, no it, it can come back on climate cycles. But those are geological cycles that outlive civilizations. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't say it never can come back, but on. Don't hold my breath. Yeah, but, yeah, don't do yeah, yeah. yeah, that. But uh, I wanted to ask you about the plastic particles. We were just reading in our paper here today in Michigan, uh, all over our beaches, uh, tiny, tiny, tiny. So you must be measuring them, uh, these plastics and what they're going to mean. Yeah, they mean a lot. So we've, we had not been thinking about microplastics on dust uh, originally. Just, just the last couple of years, people have been asking me specifically, hey, do you see microplastics in, in the dust storms, et cetera? We've certainly seen organics uh, and some of them look polymeric, so they could be uh, microplastics. We haven't focused on that yet, but the proliferation of microplastics in the environment, generally speaking, and microplastics as nanoparticles 
as fibers. Um, that is, I think at this stage, no matter where you go, you can find them if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, they've been found at flight altitudes, you know, at the top of the troposphere. They've been found deep in the ocean. They're all across the surface ocean. Um, any place continental uh, that you've got a water body, you've got microplastics in. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's part of our ecosystem now. I mean, what we have to do is limit uh, the input, but extracting it out, um, we've put so much plastic into the environment um, that it's it's part of the ecosystem now. It's 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 you know you you go in the deep sea and you find that you know these creatures have incorporated you know microplastics into their you know exoskeletons and different sorts of things. It's 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 part of us. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what you call, I think, atmospheric biodiversity and specifically what the biome, if that's the correct term, is in the atmosphere and whether that's its the primary stage in its lifestyle or does it derive from terrestrial activity? So there's a lot that does derive from terrestrial activity. And so we know that if you go to any city, the atmosphere around any city is actually in part largely informed by the people and things that live in that city as much as it is by the activities in that city, the industry, the cars, the etc. Um, but the, the first part of your question is, is actually what we're actively trying to explore. Is there, is there a community of uh, microorganisms that live, metabolize, their life cycle is in the atmosphere. And if so, how do they get there? How are they metabolizing? Who are they? You know, what's their distribution? These are really wide open questions um, and really exciting things. I mean, we started off again saying, we know that there's, there are microbial communities in the soil, the desert soils, you liberate tons of uh, Saharan dust, per storm, you transport that intercontinentally and then you deposit that someplace else. So our original question was, what happens when you transport these microbial communities from one continent to another as they move around? And we found some really cool things about that, but I'll come to your question. What we are looking at now, so look at that and said, okay, are there things that are there? Yes. Are there things that are there that are alive? Yes. Are the communities static? So that is, if I went to Mauritania and I scooped up some soil, some desert silt, and I looked at that microbial community, is that the same microbial community that I would find there as when that dust storm takes that and drops it in Puerto Rico? And the answer is no. That community evolves. And certain things that are viable there or that we don't see are viable at that time, become viable, get turned on as they move across the atmosphere. And so we think that's part of the role of the changing chemistry of that substrate. That chemistry change basically says, one thing was favorable when I was on the soil because of those conditions, but now I've changed the physical and chemical conditions and certain things turn on, certain things turn off, certain aggressors are weaker and so, you get different things. But is that evolution taking place while in the atmosphere uh, before they land on the new soil? Yes, it is. So we've been able to determine that because of the way that we've designed our experiment. And so the surface experiments, we put a mobile lab onto a ship, we sail the ship, we time the ship, you know, the experiment so that it's during a, an active dust season. And so as the storm is moving one way, our ship is moving the other way and capturing samples that we can isolate. And then we determine the microbial communities across those, uh, that time series essentially. And then we turn the ship around and we move back with the dust storm about the same time. We can perform two experiments, you know, an Eulerian experiment, where you're seeing things change in time and then you're moving with the time change 
spatially. Um, and so we, we can see that the communities are actually changing. But what we wanted to know that begs the other question is, okay, well, what was there already? Because we're capturing everything from the atmosphere, both what's on the dust and what's in the atmosphere. We can't separate those two things. So what if we did the same experiment, there's no dust in the atmosphere, what do we find? Well, we've done that. And what we found is uh, that there still are significant microbial communities in the absence of dust, even over the remote ocean. Of course, that could come from the ocean. How do we separate that? Go to the top of the atmosphere. Right? And so we need, so we're designing, but it's harder to measure at the top of the atmosphere. <laughs> so we're um, actually in the process of designing a new type of instrument that we can put onto these drifter balloons that will float uh, in the upper troposphere, capture the microbial communities, but then also uh, examine their metabolism at that point. So we're not bringing it back down. Because one of the things is once I bring it to the lab, I've got different conditions. And so I'm approximating, I'm taking an atmospheric sample and what's in that atmospheric sample I'm examining but it's not under those atmospheric conditions. And so this next experiment helps us really get to your first question. Is there, are there communities that live in the atmosphere that metabolize in the atmosphere? Their whole life cycle is in the atmosphere and who are they? The next question is how they get there. And there is a theory, there's a hypothesis that meteorites, comets struck the early Earth's atmosphere and seeded life on this planet, the planspermia hypothesis. And so we are going to test that with you know, this set of experiments if we are, um, are successful. And I've been talking to one of the, um, the scientists on the, the two Venus, Venus missions that NASA just um, approved for launch in 2028. We're hopeful to drop the same device into the upper atmosphere of Venus our sister planet and see if we can't um, detect the potential for life, uh, extraterrestrial seeding of life uh, there as well. So we're, some really exciting things going forward. I, I, uh, I Have I, you I, found species in the atmosphere that do not exist in the terrestrial? We found, we found unidentified species so that, who, that don't exist in the libraries that we have from the terrestrial environment. So yes, but I, I think there's so many things that we still don't know about the terrestrial environment. It, it's tough to definitively say, we know that this lives here until we go to a place that we have great confidence is not influenced by the terrestrial environment. What if we see new, uh, new life on Venus from, uh, from, from our life? Uh, uh, what are we likely to, to cause over there? Um, I, it would blow my mind, I think. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I think there would be, frankly, there would be, a, and there should be uh, some skeptics who say that it was probably contamination and we would have to be very careful about um, clarifying uh, that it wasn't. Um, but if we were able to um, critically show that, um, yeah, that would open up, I think, a, a lot of new questions about where, where then does it come from? You know, where is this, where does the life come from? I'm excited to do the exploration. I don't know that I'll still be, by the time we answer that question, I, I'll, I'll be long retired. <laughs> I'll be gone fishing by then, I think. <laughs> Could you say uh, a couple of words about your workforce? How do you organize your... <clears throat> your workforce? What is your workforce that's backing you up? And perhaps uh, as an addendum to that, um, your funding, are, are you uh, <clears throat> totally reliant on the federal government? Do you get private foundation grants, uh, et cetera? Uh, so the first question is easy to ask, answer. Um, I, uh, so this new proposal is, is Keck uh, Foundation. Uh, is who we're going for for that. So 
uh, it depends on the project where the funding comes from. Certainly a large part of the workforce funding and the training that has come from federal government, but I've got funding from uh, industry from Boeing uh, has funded some of my work uh, to look at particle generation. Um, local governments, you know, DC has funded some of the work. Uh, the university funds some of the work. Um, NASA and NOAA have been the by far the largest uh, supporters of my research generally, but also National Science Foundation. Um, actually, uh, Office of Navy funded some. Uh, some early work uh, looking at signal propagation through uh, Saharan dust storms, so Department of Defense. But um, I, a lot of what I do looks at phenomena, phenomena, you know, and so it's not often applied work. It's more basic research, and so entities that are interested in the sort of basic questions, fundamental questions, basic research are where I seek most of the funding. Um, workforce. So I'll answer, I'll provide an answer, then let me know if I'm answering the intended question other than the versus the question that I think I heard. Um, so one of the things that I've experienced going into atmospheric sciences is that it is not very diverse. And it was not a field that didn't have a lot of interest from African Americans or Native Americans or Chicano, Latinx, you name it. It was that opportunities tended to be rare. And so at Howard, um, you know, Howard's about 90% African American. And so starting the programs there in geoscience, one of the things I wanted to do when I got to Howard was start research and training programs in atmospheric science. I like it. I think it's exciting. I wanted other students, other African-American students to like it. Um, I had good friends in Puerto Rico. Um, and so similar, um, similar level of exclusion or non-participation by Puerto Rican scientists in the geosciences, generally speaking. And so formed an alliance with uh, some of my former classmates at Georgia Tech, <coughs> excuse me, who are Puerto Rican, as well as some friends at NASA. And we um, committed to trying to generate another generation of folks who were excited about doing research, excited about going into uh, careers in geosciences. And that's really the, the basis, I think, of the pipelines programs that we started at Howard is to, to say that if we create the opportunities and open the doors to those opportunities, we're going to find a lot of people going in. And, and early on, I was challenged by NSF um, um, because a lot of the program managers said, you know, essentially Black people aren't interested in climate science. They're not interested. You know, that's the reason they don't go in is because they're not interested. Otherwise, there would be more. Uh, and I said, well, um, if you give me some seed money, I think I can prove you wrong. And so they did give me some seed money. It was very little money. They gave me about $25,000. And I went to Navy. Navy gave me $15,000. went to Department of Energy. So I cobbled together about $100,000 to put on a workshop yeah. at Howard. You can't expect um, people to be be excited or interested about something where they see no opportunity. You create exactly. the opportunity and they'll come. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I, I saw that as being obvious. <laughs> but so we put on the workshop. We said we would bring 100 students. I think it was a little over 200 students that showed up who wanted to pursue degrees in atmospheric sciences. And that conference, we hosted that in 1997, 98. That became our pipeline, the graduate program that we were going to, that we said we were going to, to form. And so that was kind of our market analysis and a demonstration to the funding agencies. Now, I think we know what we're talking about, and we've got the pool of students to fuel this change. And so then um, the program had just started, I think, the year before. Um, we were able to start 
recruiting students into the pipeline and it was it's been sustained for about 20 years and um you know become a national leader in producing um graduate scholars you know masters and phds in uh, atmospheric sciences and i what we hoped was that that could be a model for other places and so part of what i'm doing even at arizona state but with some of the other um, advocacy is talking to other programs, uh, other institutions. I just gave a presentation to all the heads and chairs of geosciences departments uh, last week to say, look, you know, instead of complaining about diversity, you know, do these things, students will come, support them the same way you support other students, they'll be successful, and we won't be talking about this. You know, we speak from two, you know, a deficit mindset and how hard things are instead of just doing it. How far back do you go? This pattern of Sahara dust must have been happening for thousands of years. Uh, I, clearly, there are significant changes in the last 50 years, but do you go back a thousand years, 2000 years, ice cores, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, there's some, I, I don't personally, but I work with, um, I work with some folks who look at coral cores um, because you go out you know, off of Puerto Rico or even off um, the African coastline, you take a coral core, you can sort of see the variation in the dust uh, season deposition from those records. And so that's part of the, the way that we know that the, the intensity of the seasons have changed the seasons have lengthened, um, and even uh, to some degree, that the source regions have changed uh, in terms of what their sort of proportional contribution to the total season is. Because it, the Saharan Desert isn't a monolith; they're actually very unique chemical regimes in that desert. I mean, the desert's the size of the continental United States, so it's a huge expanse, but it's not the same chemistry. So you have clays predominant in certain regions or salts in other regions and silts in other regions and sands in other regions. The desert is this beautiful heterogeneous landscape chemically, physically, and biologically. And so at different times, there may be a hot spot in Chad, Lake Chad region, or other times in Libya, it's blowing up, other time in Mauritania. Well, those are different chemistries. They're different morphologies of the dust. And so once that gets into the atmosphere, the weather impact, the climate impact can be very different based on the chemistry, physics, and biology. And even the unique thing about the biology, there are microbes that when are lofted into the atmosphere have are a thousand times more effective in forming cloud droplets than sea salt. So, and we're just finding that out. So we sort of base our baseline understanding of cloud distribution globally on the fact that, okay, you always have sea salt you form these clouds. But it turns out that you could have thousand, a thousand times, three orders of magnitude less of these microbes that are pretty prevalent. And they're gonna be just as effective as sea salt. Well, hurry up on that because us Californians want you to seed our clouds. So that's yeah. So so right. So then the geoengineering. Um, so I made a presentation a while back, and so everyone wants to do geoengineering now at the expense of thinking about what the <laughs> multiplying effects are. And so one of those was okay. What if we had? What if we could engineer a microbe that expressed you know when it expressed its enzyme could actually be effective as a cloud seeding clouds, right? But when it fell to the ground, it did not then metabolize and become pathogenic to whatever environment that was. That might be a more, a friendlier way of doing cloud modification. And certainly if we want to, you know, follow Elon Musk to Mars and, and colonize Mars, what if we just engineered the microbes that we needed, drop those in from the top of the atmosphere, created rain, now you've got a wet planet, now you've got some options. But again, that's, that's after I've gone fishing. 
um, as, as a um, uh, closer in time uh, question, I wonder if, if, if you're seeing interactions between the uh, dusts from the Saharan desert and the dust that's increasingly coming up from forest fires, in, including forest fires in the Mediterranean area. Um, and also, um, it's now pretty clear that a lot of particulate pollution is coming from the burning of fossil fuels. So I, I wonder if you're seeing interactions with that type of particle uh, with the Saharan dust. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, that is sort of a central question that I'm designing some field campaigns in the Phoenix area to address because what's one of the things that's unique about Phoenix, huge automobile, you know, numbers here. So a lot of um, combustion emissions, uh, really poor air quality because we're in a, a valley surrounded by mountains. The forest fires surround us and pour into the mountains. And then we've got dust that also pours in. And then to complicate things, there are 16 feedlots that pour bioaerosols into the same valley. And so short answer to that question is, yes, they interact. No, we don't actually understand how particles interact in the atmosphere. We understand cumulative effects. So if you're just a person and you're breathing in, you know, microbes from chicken gut farms that are downstream, um, car pollution, forest fire pollution, and dust, you're probably going to choke. You kind of know, <laughs> we kind of know that. But it turns out that there can be chemical evolution that's really unique that's happening in those spaces, but we just, we don't know because it can be really complex just by themselves. And a lot of the work so far has just been studying, okay, what do forest fires do? What do dust storms do? What does urban pollution do? What do feedlots do? So, you know, stay tuned on, on that one. I, I, I don't know. There's some seasonal things that we're fortunate to be able to piece apart uh, and try to get at things parametrically, but I, I, I think there's gonna be some unique insights there. Probably not great stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, our pollution is is bad. Um, but if you've read some of the summaries from the recent IPCC, we've polluted the lower atmosphere so much that it's actually offsetting global warming in certain areas almost by one percent. You know, one degree. So there's a you know, it's it's like we need to reduce the pollution. But if we really clean the air, we then have to deal with this other problem that we also started, which is it's going to get really hot now. And so I, I think um, Phoenix is interesting because of it, the heat. I forgot that you have the extreme heat, fires, dust, feedlots, urban pollution. So this is sort of a model for where the globe is going. But right now. Can you answer me another question? Uh, every time I hear there's bad atmosphere, I'm told stay indoors. Um, <laughs> does, does the house really does that filter that air, or doesn't it just doesn't it just come right in inside anyway? No, no. The house filters the air. The, you know, we've you know air conditioning uh, technology, filtering technology. As long as you change your filters, it's exceptional. But what it also does is it prevents, it prevents venting of what you've got inside the house. And so there's been some studies, uh, some colleagues up at uh, CU Boulder have looked at how, you know, fragrances and clean cleansers and bathroom products create a different type of toxicity indoors. And so I think it's, you're not worried so much worried about what you're protecting yourself against from outdoors, but you got to watch what you have indoors because that's going to create its own atmosphere, so to speak. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think storing, you know, your most toxic cleansers, if you're not using sort of the, the organic stuff outside, uh, helps tremendously. 
because your, your exposure to organics and carcinogens inside is much greater than it is outside. So you're saying that we put it outside and pollute everybody as opposed to keeping it inside and pollute ourselves. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> or, or don't use it. <laughs> I'm saying try to, try to reduce its use. But if, if you have it inside, try to get in a place where it can vent because it's, it's, it's much more concentrated in your living space. Yeah. Uh, when you look ahead to uh, the uh, Biden's legacy Build Back Better initiative, which may or may not make it, uh, uh, do you see much support for uh, uh, research in your field and for increased minority representation? And and your senator, <laughs> Kristen Cinema, <laughs> says that, that the one thing she does care about is in the bill is climate uh, 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 climate change effectiveness. Uh, uh, where do you? Where do you see all that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I work for a state school, so uh, I have to. Let me see. I have a letter from my senator over here. I, I don't. It's not, I don't see it right on top, but she's she actually sent me a letter congratulating me for some of the work that we're doing. So I think she's at least at the uh, on one level supportive. Um, you know, I think it's really challenging for a anyone in Arizona to deny the stresses on the environment. It's, it's here every day. Um, so I, I, I hope, would hope that she is in fact supportive of climate research and adaptation measures and, and, uh, and we do that. But I think it's really difficult to, and this is getting to the Biden's, um, Biden administration's platform, I think it's really difficult to effectively address climate change without significant social, economic, and political transformation. It's within the frameworks that we currently operate, the frameworks in which we currently operate are why we have a climate catastrophe. So to say, we're gonna keep businesses normal on all fronts, but we're going to solve this problem that we created because of these systems is a little inane, frankly. And I'm not a politician, clearly. Um, so I, I think the Biden administration is uh, has proposed a lot of funding that will go into uh, climate research, but we need the climate research to go into action and policy. And that's different than doing research. And so I don't know, you know, there's, there's been some legislation that's expanding oil exploration and drilling and fracking, um, deep sea mining. Um, these are not climate aware policies. And they're, and they're also not, they are counter to climate environmental equity as well. And so I, I think there's some contradictions. There's some contradictions in the, in, the, in the current program. Are they better than before? Um, are, they, are they at least acknowledging um, the, the urgency, yes, I think that's good, but I, I, I think they're still short-sighted and they're gonna fall short. And well, Brian, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I w was talking to, you know, a bunch of kids who I think they were about six or seven or five years old. And uh, they, I told them I was gonna be talking to a scientist today and they were excited about that. And they felt that, hey, there's gonna be evolution is going to take care of it. There's going to be some sort of animal developed that's going to like to eat plastics and <laughs> solve our problem. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it's not that far fetched, or is it? I mean, what's your sense of that? It's well, yeah, I think that I think that there will be organisms that evolve or already exist that can metabolize plastics. They're, they're on point. Yeah, that's that's happening now. 
Um, there have probably always been, we've engineered microbes that can uh, degrade just about anything. You know, nuclear, there, there's these microbes that can take nuclear waste and convert it. I mean, the, you know, the living world is, is fantastic. Will it solve our problems? I think that goes back to uh, what William was saying. You know, humans can solve, can create problems mm. on a much faster and greater time scale and, and, and scale than we can understand the world that we live in. Uh, and so I don't know that, um, I don't know that an organism will evolve at the rate an organism that could counter our issues will evolve at the rate that we're creating more issues. I think we, we got way ahead of that. All right. Well, any more questions? Thank you so much. Any more questions at all? Or? Oh, no. Thanks. These are, so what's, these, what's next for you? I mean, you're going to... Tougher questions than my students ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you're on your way to a Nobel Prize and that sort of stuff, and we'll, we'll have you back. Uh, I, 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 I talk too crazy for a Nobel Prize. Okay, you'll have to you'll have to invite my balloon to come into the top of Venus. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, invite us all to Stockholm with you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, if I get to Stockholm, I will. So remember that name, Vernon Morris. We suspect that you will be hearing a lot about him in the near future. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.